0: Well, appreciate the uh, work that Darby and all the choir put into bringing us those songs. Uh, Always a great, great occasion to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. That is what Christians all around the world are doing today. They're gathering to celebrate uh, that, among all other events, as the great day of victory for every one of us who place our faith in Christ. The fact that we, although we are facing death and decay in this body, are not ultimately bound for that, but we are bound for a day of resurrection because of the resurrection of our Savior. Now, all of that in the eyes of the world is looked upon, summarized, you might say, with one word, delusional. That's the famous word that was given by Richard Dawkins a century and a half, excuse me, a decade and a half ago in his book, God Delusion. It's what he called these kinds of beliefs. He says when a person suffers from a delusion, it's called insanity. When many people suffer from a delusion, it's called religion. That's the sentiment of most of the world, in fact, on a day like this when we gather to celebrate the kind of event we're celebrating. It's increasingly the idea that anyone who believes in a thing such as the resurrection is in some sort of psychological, psychological deficiency or flaw, maybe some sort of intellectual deficit that's overcome them, that they have just embraced because of their circumstances and surrounding and upbringing. Dawkins assumes that faith is incompatible with intellectual rigor, sophisticated thinking, modernistic worldviews. And so Dawkins writes, quote, religion is scarcely distinguishable from childhood delusions like the imaginary friend or the boogeyman under the bed. Unfortunately, the God delusion possesses adults. A delusion is something that people believe in spite of a total lack of evidence, he says. Or in another place, he writes, the one truly bad effect of religion is that it teaches us that it's a virtue to be satisfied with not understanding. End quote. That's what most of the world thinks about what we do today, about what we celebrate today. They think it is incompatible with intellectual rigor. It's incompatible with the real facts of the world. It is delusional. But Dawkins and everyone who joins him, they're actually the ones who've misunderstood the nature of faith. They're actually the ones who are embracing what is delusional. Because while it may not accord with their naturalistic assumptions, what we believe is not unreasonable. Far from avoiding any kind of understanding, faith in the resurrection of Christ, faith in Christ in general, it faces the hard difficulties of life. It faces some of the most stark realities of the world, the pains and the sufferings. And it calculates that the answers to all of these issues are not limited to only what we can test and verify. It actually goes beyond what is currently within our grasp, but it doesn't go beyond what's in the grasp of God. In fact, it understands that answers to these questions have to come from some source, from someone who fully knows and and calculates everything. And the only one who is like that, the only one who ever could be like that is God himself. Now, this is brought home to us in a passage that I want to turn our attention to this morning in Romans chapter 4, because it takes a close look at the character of faith. A character of faith from a man named Abraham, and Paul highlights the faith of Abraham in the face of what are the realities of life, the difficulties of life, but also the deficiencies of his own grasp, his own knowledge. It calculates all of those things and comes to a place of genuine saving faith, which Paul says is the same kind of faith that you and I must have. When it comes to the resurrection of Christ, this is the character of true saving faith in the face of the arguments and the claims that would rationalize and dismiss it. True faith that is determined that God is the one who alone can answer all of the dilemmas of life and ultimately provide its solutions. This is what Paul says about Abraham, beginning in verse 13 of Romans chapter 4. He says, The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression." That's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offsprings, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it's written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is a faith that Paul's talking about that faces the difficulties, the realities, the pains, the sufferings of life. It understands the real hurts. It understands that all of those things and all of those difficulties will not be resolved by our own efforts. Those difficulties can't be solved by our moral efforts. It can't be solved by our religious efforts. It can't be eliminated by managing social change or behavioral change. It can't be solved by a few psychological remedies. This is a, a real faith for a real world of real suffering. And it looks for real answers. And it finds those answers in a real God. And what Paul's describing here is a faith that understands that nothing in us or nothing in this world is ever going to answer those things. The chief exhibit that he gives to us to demonstrate that is Abraham who is, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, an indelible model of faith because his life was one that was touched by the anxiety and the sorrow and the heartache and the pain of life, particularly the pain of barrenness, the pain of grief and the pain of loss. And yet he held on to a hope and a faith in a God that through all of that, ultimately, brought about not only salvation, but righteousness. And Paul points to this pattern as a model for our faith as we place our hope in the resurrection of Christ. Now, as he does that, there are several things that we need to highlight about Abraham's faith, looking at this passage, what real faith looks like, what saving faith looks like what the kind of faith looks like that takes on all the difficulties of life in the world and finds in it not only hope, but victory. Specifically, Paul highlights four facets of that kind of faith that are found in Abraham and in every true believer, beginning, first of all, with a faith that is directed by what God says. This is what Paul talks about in verses 16 and 17, the faith that Abraham displayed It began with the words of God. It began with what God said. This is what he talks about in verse 17. As it's written, I made, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed. This is where it all began with Abraham. It began with a word that came to Abraham, particularly in Genesis 17, when the Lord appeared to Abraham, when Abraham was in the presence of God, when God spoke to Abraham. Long before the New Testament was ever written, really long before the Old Testament was ever written, when God spoke directly to Abraham, but it was a time when Abraham was 99 years old, and Sarah, his wife, was 75 years old. In other words, they had already reached the stage of being grandparents, and yet they had no children And they had no grandchildren. They had nothing. They were barren. This was a dilemma of Abraham and Sarah's life. In fact, the first time Sarah is ever introduced to us in the Bible in Genesis chapter 11, it just simply says, Sarah, who was barren. It defined her life. As it does for so many, but especially back in those days, when giving birth to children was so central both culturally and even practically, as you endeavored to survive from day to day, primarily working your farms, raising your crops. This was a couple who had gone through the entire cycle of life, now married for 55, 60 years. Sarah, no doubt, would have been married in her teens. And they went through this entire cycle of marriage and hope and their efforts to give birth to children and disappointment and dejection and the shame that follows it, maybe followed by more determination, more efforts, trying different solutions, further disappointment, more shame, bewilderment, despair. All of the sorrow and all of the emotion that drug on from one month to the next month to the next year, to the next year, and the next decade, and the next decade. Sorrow and disappointment that ultimately ended at the place of resignation and acceptance. When Sarah finally passed out of the childbearing years, into the years that Paul says... And Abraham realized that her womb was dead. That's the language that's used here. He realized that Sarah's womb was dead. The ESV ESV translates it as barren, but that's the real word there. She had a dead womb. All of this, by the way, was happening to Abraham while he was going through all the other struggles of life, the battles, the hardships, broken relationships, it wasn't just this issue of barrenness. He faced all the hardships of life. He faced people who backstabbed him, people who uh, falsely accused him, people who threatened to take away all of his possessions, the injustices of life. He faced all of those things, all of those griefs He had to walk in the world the way you and I walked in the world. And on top of that, he had the ultimate mockery of the fact that his name, Abraham, literally means father of many nations. So he had to go through life introducing himself to people, hey, I am the father of many nations When he himself had no children, it had to be a regular source of heartache and pain. All of this was even accentuated, no doubt, when the Lord came to Abram when he himself was 75 years old. And he says to him, behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer will your name be Abram, but your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. That was when he was 75 years old that God gave him that new name. And yet, for 25 years, nothing happened. Nothing happened. You see, faith is a challenge not to believe that God's going to answer your every whim and desire or overcome every obstacle that you face. It's the challenge simply to believe what God has specifically revealed. That was a simple challenge of Abraham, just simply to believe what God said. And so the word came to Abraham, And he had to place his faith in it. He had to believe that God doesn't lie. And this is exactly what he did. Exactly what he did at the age of 75. He placed his faith in the word of God and the promise of God. He believed what God said. Specifically, Paul says in verse 17, Abraham understood that that God, in whom he believed, was the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Paul says down in verse 19, Abraham considered his own body as good as dead since he was 99 years old. He also there considered literally the deadness, the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now you can see Paul is setting up this message about the faith of Abraham in a similar fashion to our own faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's talking about deadness. Abraham believed that God could give life to the dead, the deadness in his own procreative abilities, the deadness of Sarah's womb, in the same way that you and I must believe that God raised Christ from the dead. And it isn't just that. It's a promise really in everything that God says. But that's the central promise of Christianity. That's the central victory that we claim. That sin does not lead to ultimate death. Sin does not leave us forever in the grave. Sin doesn't leave us ultimately spiritually dead and, and separated from God for eternity. That because of the resurrection of Christ... Death is defeated because sin is defeated, and therefore forgiveness reconciles us to God. We believe these promises from God. Now, that is the core of Abraham's faith, but Paul doesn't end there because he takes us to a second critical component in Abraham's faith. In verse 18 and 19, he tells us it was a faith that evaluated its own Inadequacies. He says that Abraham believed in hope. He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was a hundred years old. That is to say, he took full stock of the painful realities. That confronted him and Sarah every day in her barrenness. And in hope, he believed against hope. It's a critical statement there. The skeptic may picture the Christianity as someone who buries their heads in the sand, who just sort of ignores the real tragedies of life, who pretends like they're not there. But this certainly isn't what Abraham was doing. He wasn't pretending like the pain wasn't still there, he was facing it full on. And against that hopelessness, he maintained his hope in God. He wasn't a man who ignored the difficulties that the world posed. He considered, Paul says, he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, 99 years old. He took a hard look at the natural world around him, the natural circumstances around him. He knew the phenomenon of nature. He knew the way that life worked. He pondered his situation and the facts. He took full stock of all the information available to him. It all pointed to childlessness. It all pointed to hopelessness. It all pointed to defeat. He was well aware of all those things. But those weren't the only facts and information that he had, because he also had a word from God. God had spoken to him, God had pointed him to the stars of the sky and told him, Your descendants will be like that, as many as the stars in the heavens. And so it was the full scope of data that Abraham took into consideration. He considered his own natural circumstances. He considered the natural circumstances of Sarah, but he also considered what God had said. You see, the modern assumption is that you can only really believe what you can experience with your senses. What you see, what you hear, what you touch, what you taste, what you smell... You believe the grass is green in the spring and the sky clears after the rain. You believe that cows are brown or black and white or whatever color you've experienced. You believe that dogs bark and uh, cats meow. You believe all that because you've experienced that. You've heard it. You've seen it. They believe that the more Confidently, they have experienced something, the truer it is. And all of this is really summarized under the philosophical term empiricism, which you can mix with rationalism, those kinds of things that you can reason in your heart. Modern minds rely on these things, at least they believe they do, those things that ultimately they believe they can prove real foundation of popular belief is that ultimately you are the judge of what is true but is that really the way we come to know truth do you come to know truth because you personally witness and see and touch and smell and taste everything Do you know and believe things because you have fully verified and examined them, all of them? Not really. It's not the way you believe. There are many things in life that you claim to know and believe. They order and govern your life every day, but you've not personally checked them out. You've not personally examined every one of them. There are things you believe and accept without having experienced or visibly seen them. Truths about ancient history. Truths about nuclear particles, medical research, communication technology, you don't independently verify those things. You believe them because some authority has told you that, because someone you trust has told you that. In fact, you couldn't possibly verify all that. If you tried to verify every so-called fact of the modern age, you'd need to then verify that whatever method or instrument or book you're using to verify itself is verified. And you would have to keep verifying and verifying ad infinitum. You couldn't do it all. There's no way that you could wrap your mind or even give your time to all of that. No, reality is we know a lot of things, we believe a lot of things that we can't even verify. We accept them based on credible testimony. And the facts that we so often claim to orient our life, they themselves are open to interpretation among people. And then there are some things that seem obvious to us, but they're not verifiable by observation. For example, all men are mortal. You might consider that a fact, but you can't independently verify it. That goes beyond anything that anyone could do. There are six billion people in the world today and billions who have been born in the past, more who will be born into the future You couldn't independently verify the mortality of every one of them, go find every one of their graves, prove that every one of them died by empirical observation. You couldn't do it. You have to accept it because you believe the testimony is credible from someone else. A mortal man may say no one has ever been raised from the dead, but can you verify that? No. You have to rely on the testimony of others and believe that they're operating in good faith and that they're infallible. The same is true of all kinds of statements of mathematics and science and technology. We accept them based on credible testimony. Well, for believers, God is the key witness and he's the key source The testimony that we believe and the one by whom we evaluate all knowledge. What he says means more to us than the testimony of all men. Because unlike all men, God has experienced everything. And unlike all men, God does know everything. And unlike anyone else, God can verify everything that he says. Not only that, it's trustworthy. Because unlike mortal men, he not only knows the past, but he knows the future. And so we can trust what he says. And this was Abraham's calculation. He hoped, or or in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as had been told him. He had all the empirical knowledge that everyone else had. He considered his own body he considered the barrenness of sarah's womb but he also understood the limitations of his own knowledge he didn't put his hope in himself and in his ability to know the future instead he placed his hope in the one who does the one who had spoken The one who was to be believed. The testimony of God was the primary basis of his belief. Not himself. Third, Abraham had a faith that was counted as righteous because it was a faith that grew when tested. That is to say, Paul tells us no unbelief made him waver. Verse 20, concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So Abraham still had all the natural circumstances of life that loomed in his mind. He still had all the difficulties and yet he continued to yield his heart to God and his faith grew stronger because that's the nature of saving faith, of true faith. False faith, and there are many who have false faith. False faith doesn't do that. You remember Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 13 when he speaks about seed that is sown in various places. Some of it is sown on the pathways of, of life, if you will. Some of it is sown on the rocky soil. Some of it is sown on good soil. Some of it is sown in, uh, in other places. It's all cast wherever it goes, and some of it sprouts up. It begins to look like the genuine thing for a while, but it does not stand the test of this life. The scorching sun of trials. The evil one who comes and snatches it away. The rocky soil that has no root and is quickly turned away by the allurements of the world. The cares of this life. The fascination with riches. But true faith faces all of those things, it faces all the disappointments of life, and it continues to get stronger and stronger. Why? Because during those times of difficulty, it refocuses and draws closer to God. True faith is tested, it is stretched, but it doesn't fail. Because ultimately, his faith isn't in the circumstances of life, his faith is in a God who goes beyond those circumstances, So someone comes along and says, man, I see what you're facing. You're going to lose everything. You're going to lose everything. The challenge comes to your faith. People are turning against you. You're facing the rejection and the dejection. And yet the more difficult circumstances become, the greater your confidence in God that He is faithful, that He is trustworthy, that He is good, that He is perfect, that He doesn't lie. And your faith grows. Those things never destroy it. Couldn't destroy Job's faith. Couldn't destroy Abraham's faith. Couldn't destroy Paul's faith. Couldn't destroy the faith of any true believer. A lot of people telling you that you have got it all wrong, that God's character can't be trusted, that God's word can't be trusted, that your faith will never deliver you, and in the end you continue to cling to God and your faith gets deeper and deeper. This was Abraham. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. As the waiting years wore on, as the promise of God seemed more and more out of reach, Abraham just drew strong. Closer and closer to God, he believed God more and more, and the strength of his faith, Paul says, was manifest in two ways. He first of all gave glory to God at the end of verse 20. We're not sure exactly what Paul has in mind when he says this, if he's just speaking in general. But the longer Abraham went on his journey with God, the more difficulties he faced, the more careful he was to give glory to God. That's the point. The more he spoke of God, the more he magnified God, the more he talked about God's goodness. Even in the face of the barrenness. Even in the what appeared to be the lack of fulfillment. Abraham didn't shy away from talking about God and boldly proclaiming his promises. Abraham's faith grew. And secondly, Paul says that this strengthening of the faith was evident not only from the fact that he glorified God, but that he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised fully convinced as it went on from year to year and decade to decade over the 25 years from the time he first heard the promise to the time he was 99 when every conceivable earthly hope was gone. He gave glory to God and he trusted in the Lord. Now all that brings us to the main point that Paul has here, which is not just to tell us the story the ancient story of Abraham, but it's to tell us that a faith that's counted as righteous is a faith that ultimately believes the resurrection of Christ. His whole point is just simply to demonstrate to us the nature of saving faith. It's still the same, even today. Verse 22, that's why His faith, Abraham's faith, was counted to him as righteousness, but the words "It was counted to him were not written for his sake, but for ours also. This is the kind of faith, in other words, that was demonstrated in Abraham so that we would understand how faith operates. It's not a faith in the promise of a child from a barren womb. Instead, it's a faith in a Savior who was raised from the dead. And Paul says in verse 23, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the central challenge that faces you today, to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, not primarily because you were there to see it. And not primarily, even because someone else tells you about it, but primarily because this is what God says. Based on the credible testimony of God and His Word, we believe that Jesus was not only crucified, not only that He died on a cross, not only that He suffered and was buried. But he, that he rose bodily from the grave to live forever, to never die again. He defeated death. The Bible's unmistakably clear that the resurrection of Christ not only happened, but that it was necessary for your salvation. This is what Paul goes on to say there in verse 24 that he was delivered up, verse 25, I should say, delivered up. For our transgressions, Christ's death on the cross displayed God's wrath against our sins. He was delivered up for our transgressions. He was placed there on the cross and God's fury was poured out against him so that it wouldn't be poured out against you. And then he was raised for our justification. That is to say, the resurrection displays God's acceptance of the sacrifice. If Jesus just simply went to the cross and suffered and went through all of that agony and was laid in the grave, guess what? It would have done us no good. Because if sin was Excuse me, if death was still reigning, if death still had victory over him, it meant that sin had victory over him. But by the defeating of death, he demonstrates the defeating of sin. See, this is God's ultimate plan. This is what God sent Christ to do. To defeat sin. And by defeating sin, defeat death. You may remember this is ultimately what God designed for the world. He created the world with Adam and Eve, two people, in perfection, without sin, designed to live forever. But, of course, they fell into sin. And when they fell into sin, death entered into the world. And after them, every person born in this world was born under the curse of sin And therefore, under death. And death reigned from Adam all the way up to the time of Christ. But when Christ came, He he accomplished a plan to not only defeat death, or I should say, He accomplished a plan to defeat death by defeating the sin that caused it. Removing sin bringing in forgiveness, reconciling us to God, undoing the work of sin and completely restoring the order that God originally designed for men and women. See, salvation involves not only your inner person, your spirit, it involves your body. Because the scripture says just as Christ was raised from the dead, you and I will also be raised from the dead. On the day of his return, on the day of our ultimate victory, he'll come and we'll all experience a resurrection. We'll all be renewed into glorified, eternal bodies that never die again. A complete restoration from everything that sin had taken from us and from the world. When Jesus rose, his resurrection was a testimony that God had accomplished all that. And Paul says you have to believe. You believe not because you can independently verify it. You believe not because you can touch it or taste it. Not because you can see it or Smell it. You believe because God has declared this is what he's done. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If there was no resurrection, we, would, we really would be believing a delusion. We really would be like a bunch of children sitting around with a tea party with the pots and the cups and the tablecloth, but no tea in the pot, nothing real. But we believe... We believe a reality of a man who defeated death. And he defeated death because he defeated sin. And so like Abraham who believed when his body was as good as dead, we believe in God who raises the dead. And that through all the struggles and anguish and pain that we go through because of sin in this life, there awaits us a resurrected body because there's a resurrected Savior and that's true saving faith. That is eternal faith. And because of all that, the scripture declares in Romans ten nine that if we confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Father, we're grateful for this message. Today, on the Easter day, a resurrection celebration, we're grateful to have the hope of salvation. We're thankful for a Savior who wasn't defeated by sin and wasn't defeated by death. And because of that, we do not need to be defeated by sin, nor by death. This is salvation Indeed, in body and soul. And we're grateful to have that hope. And against all the pain that's around us, we know there awaits an ultimate restoration of the world, of life, of ourselves, the way it was meant to be. Lord, we're thankful that you have offered this to us, that you not only accomplished it, but by your promises in your word, you have revealed it to us, and that by faith, all of this can be credited to us as righteousness and as salvation. Thank you, Lord. We gladly cling to it and claim it as our own today, and give glory to you. In Christ's name, amen.